Hello, and welcome to the Literati Cast. I'm Jennifer Loughran, and I'm a senior agent at the Andrea Brown Literary Agency, where I rep children's books from picture books through YA and everything in between. It's the first episode of 2020. As always, in these early days of the year, when we're diving back into work after a long holiday break, I feel like I'm starting with a fresh notebook and sharpened pencils. I'm ready to tackle the world and brimming with optimism and big ideas. Though it's true that the outside world is uh, somewhat challenging, and it can also be easy to feel overwhelmed and anxious, I'm trying to embrace the nicer feelings for as long as I can. To this end, I'm excited to bring you today's guest, Kate Messner. Kate was among my very first clients, and we've been working together since 2008, which doesn't sound like that long until you realize that time is moving very swiftly, and it has in fact been over a decade. Yikes. <laughs> in that time, Kate has built her career exponentially, with several dozen books across categories published, approximately a million school visits a year, and all while being one of the staunchest spokespeople for children and kindest and most generous promoters of other writers that I know. It's truly an honor to get to work with her and be a small part of her world takeover, and I'm so pleased to introduce her to you. We're going to be talking about Kate Messner's books a little bit, but also about the general business of career building in the larger sense. This should be interesting for both debut authors and for mid-career authors who want a little boost of inspiration. So let's get to it. Let me see if I can get Kate on the line. Hi, Kate. Hi, Jen. How are you? I'm great. So we've been working together for a long time, over 10 years, as long as I've been an agent, in fact. So I can definitely give your resume upside down and backward. But for the benefit of those who may not know you so well yet, can you give us the nutshell version of your amazing author origin story? Sure. So I always loved writing as a kid. But the truth is, when I was growing up, I did not know that being an author was a job they would give you. It never occurred to me. I mean, I, I had favorite books, and I, I knew they were written by authors, but it really never occurred to me that writing those Ramona books was Beverly Cleary's job. Um, so when I went to college, I went to school for journalism. I left television news seven years later to become a middle school English teacher. And like most teachers, I was immersed in stories with my students all the time, and my uh, writing life sort of started up again when I was writing with my students. Um, and so I was teaching when I wrote my first novel, The Brilliant Fall of Gianna Z, which I then queried. And uh, of course, I queried you. And uh, we ended up Yay. selling that novel <laughs> after a stretch. <laughs> um, so now you've published how many books? 36 books for kids and then two more for teachers and librarians and writers. Uh, and then 12 more on the way in 2020. It's going to be a wild year, busiest year I've had. Um, and those are a mix of picture books and chapter books and novels and nonfiction. So we're going to circle back to get into it about some of those titles a little later during self-promotion corner. But for now, let's just say you know a little something about career building. And I know that that is something that is very much on the minds of many or most or possibly all the authors who are listening right now. So if you don't mind, I'm going to pepper you with questions and you can regale me with stories and then everyone will be happy. Okay. <laughs> it sounds like a plan. Okay. So first of all, I get this question all the time, like literally all the time, every day. And you are the perfect person to answer this. Actually, people say, well, I'm currently writing such and such kind of book, a middle grade or a picture book. 
but really, I want to write all kinds of books. I don't want to be pigeonholed. So you write fiction, nonfiction, picture books, early readers, chapter books, middle grade. What advice do you have for people who want to, like you, write across many a genre and category? I actually think this can work really well as long as what you're writing is coming from your heart and your curiosity rather than trying to follow trends. I do think there's occasionally a tendency for writers because we all feel that writerly insecurity sometimes to look around and say, oh no, it's young adult that's hot right now and I write middle grade. Maybe I need to write YA or graphic novels or long form narrative nonfiction or whatever. And I don't think that works at all. Um, You've had a lot to say about chasing trends in your podcasts and tumblers. Um, Jen, and one big issue is that by the time you're chasing it, it's way too late anyway. So I think it just makes the most sense to write the books of your heart. And if those books span multiple age groups and genres like mine do, I think that's great. It it does give you a lot of different publishing opportunities. Uh, Let's face it, I could not publish 12 novels in a year or 12 picture book biographies. But what I have going on this year works because those books are so varied for different age groups and and different readers. And I mean, being realistic, not to be a downer or anything, but you're not going to be good at necessarily at writing every single kind of book. So maybe both follow your heart and also experiment, but be ready to say like, hey, maybe I'm not at the place that where I'm a great picture book author right now. And that's something I can practice. <laughs> you know, some people are great at water writing YA. Other people cannot tap into that voice at all. Some people are amazing picture book authors, but picture books are very hard and not everyone is, you know, amazing at writing them right off the bat. So you know, I, I encourage experimentation, but also like see what's actually working. Yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense. And also when you experiment, just because you experiment writing something doesn't mean you have to publish it either. Um, you know, I play around with a lot of different kinds of writing and I think play is a really important part of the process. Totally. So what some people will say is don't publishers want you to have a brand and you know, I don't want to have a brand and whatever. There's a lot of talk about this mysterious thing called branding. And some listeners might remember that I talked about this a little bit with Jess Keating in an episode a while back. She had some very smart things to say, basically, that everyone has a brand, whether they want one or not. A brand is just what people think of when they think of you and your books. And the thing you want to do is control that narrative. So how do you make it work when you have a lot of different irons in the fire? I mean, I know what I think your brand is, Kate, but what do you think your brand is? It's funny, Jen. I remember you and I talking about this in our very first phone conversation uh, more than a decade ago. I had heard about branding and how once you write a book about vampires, people want more of those. And I didn't want to do that. So we talked about it. I wanted to write lots of different kinds of books because I was and still am fiercely interested in so many different things, nature and history and different kinds of families and magic, and I could keep going. But what I didn't realize at that time is that this passionate curiosity I was describing would actually end up being my brand. Um, I think that's what it is. I think when people think of me as a writer now, they think of someone who's excited about learning and sharing And also, I guess, someone who's not afraid to tackle difficult topics with care. So I don't know, maybe curiosity and courage. That's so funny because my, like, I just wrote a little quick 
blurb kind of thing about what I think your thing is. And so I would say that you're an expert at making difficult questions accessible for young readers and that your books always reflect your boundless curiosity and heart. There you go. So I think we're on the same page. Yeah, there you have it. (laughs) So when you first started out, did you take career building book by book or did you have a kind of five or 10 year plan? And if you did have a plan, has that plan come to fruition or how has it changed? This is such an embarrassing question to answer. (laughs) I would love to tell you that I had (laughs) this big master plan, uh, but I really didn't. And I kind of still don't. I was just talking to my husband about this the other day and how I'd like to become a little more intentional with my work and career plans. Because sometimes in my writing life, I feel like like this golden retriever out chasing squirrels. I mean, I'm so driven by curiosity (laughs) and I can be really impulsive. And this is why I sometimes will run ideas by you before they get too far. Um, I'd love to be the kind of person who can make a chart about, you know, what I'll be looking on or working on for the next five years. And uh, my husband said, that's a terrible idea because all your best work happens when you're bouncing around excited about something new and energized by that curiosity. It's working, so don't mess with it. So it's interesting. That made me step back for a minute and think about that, that maybe that curiosity isn't just my brand, but also pretty essential to my writing process and my career. When I started out, to be honest, my only goal was to explore ideas that excited me and to have fun making the kinds of books that I was hoping to share with my own kids on also the kind of books I love to put in my students' hands when I was teaching. Um, and that's what I did. And I, I really couldn't have imagined back then where that would lead. Amazing. When, though, did you know that you should or could quit your day job? Because you were a teacher for a long time after I represented you and after you'd sold a bunch of books. Yeah. And teaching is so much more than a day job. I mean, that that's a career that I loved. Um, but I also loved writing. And so I was doing both for, um, you know, for, for years of my career. I think I knew it was time to make a decision. Actually, I know exactly when it was time. I'd had a really busy summer and the new school year had just started. Um, And my husband uh, at dinner one night asked how I was doing, if I was handling everything okay with the juggling. And I remember telling him that I was okay. It was fine. But I felt like I had a big pile of stuff in one hand and a big pile of stuff in the other hand. And if anybody added one thing to either side, everything was going to come toppling down. And it was literally that week that I got an email from you um, via one of my pub or from one of my publishers. Uh, it was good news. We want four more books from you. And I looked at that email and <laughs> no! realized, well, yeah, no, but yes, but no. Um, I realized that I either had to say no or really think about that, uh, making that leap into writing full time earlier than I had intended. Uh, so we sat down as a family. And we talked it through. By that time, my income from publishing was approaching my teaching income. And my husband also had a job with health insurance. So that worked financially. And it made sense in other ways, too. I realized that what started out with publishing a single book for me had turned into a second, very full-time job. Um, And that was really too much. Our kids are older now, but at the time, they were both in school. And it all just made sense. Things kind of came together. It wasn't an easy decision, though. Um, I still loved teaching. I still do love teaching. Uh, and I would miss it terribly if I didn't get to do so much work with kids now when I do author visits and writing workshops. 
I'm always going to be a teacher at heart, I think, as well as a writer. So. so one of the things I always say that is super important to me as an agent when I'm thinking about potential clients and who I want to work with, well, it's two things, actually, at, like attributes that I think people, make people nice to work with. The first is optimism and the second is flexibility. I think you have both of those qualities in heaps. And I think people know what I mean when I say optimism. I don't mean like Pollyanna or anything. I don't mean that there can never be low moments because, of course, there are, especially in, you know, this crazy writing life, but more a general sort of positivity, like approaching things in a in a way that's creative and wanting to build rather than tearing things down. Um, but the other one might be a little bit more opaque. What do you think I mean by flexibility and why is it important? I would have to say, I think flexibility ranks right up there with passion and hard work as maybe the most essential piece of the puzzle when it comes to success in writing for kids. And I think it's essential because stuff happens in publishing all the time. I mean, books get delayed and canceled and manuscripts that you love get rejected. Books that you love get snarky reviews or no reviews and deadlines get changed. Things that you really hope will happen don't happen. Um, I mean, a lot goes wrong in publishing and a lot is just strange in publishing. And there are a lot of disappointments along the way. So the first thing I always do when something goes wrong is ask myself, what, if anything, can I definitely do to make this situation better? And if there's something in your power, great, but often there isn't. So the thing that makes the situation better then has to be your response to it. So in those cases, like when only one person shows up for a bookstore event, I always think, oh, look, it's the universe giving me an opportunity to be gracious and then, uh, you know, do my best to take (laughs) advantage of that opportunity. But mostly I try to remember that the one thing I can always control is my own work. So when something goes wrong with publishing, the thing that can always go right is me getting back to work on my next book. And I mean, I should mention, it's not that only bad things happen in publishing. No, no. <laughs> Obviously, sometimes those those surprises can also be good ones or great ones like you're, you know, we want four more books. Um, but we don't tend to mull over those, unfortunately. Not quite It's the always, same way. you know, the start... <laughs> The starred review with the one slightly negative sentence in it. Um, it's the negative sentence that people always remember. But there is a lot of great and fun things about publishing as well. There are. I didn't mean to sound so, like a downer there. The thing is, we don't need we don't need flexibility <laughs> when things are going beautifully so much, right? It's when when you get thrown turns in the road. <laughs> Totally. Um, So every writer has to forge their own path. I've said it before. Um, You can look at any successful writer and want to emulate them. And I'm sure there's a lot of people that want to emulate emulate your success. And there's nothing wrong with that. But unfortunately, you can't. Like nobody has the same experience as anyone else. Even if I sold two books by two different writers to the same editor on the same day, I guarantee those books would have two very different paths to publication. So Can you talk a little bit about the importance of like keeping your eyes on your own paper? Yeah, for sure. There's always going to be somebody who gets something that you don't have, whether it's the size of the book deal or the marketing plan or, uh, you know, you name it. And it's interesting. I think an expert on addiction 
would have a lot to say about publishing and how it conditions us in many ways to need more affirmation all the time. Uh, you know, you start out in this this field and you you just want to finish a manuscript and then you just want to get an agent and boy, if I could only sell a book and well, really, if I could sell another <laughs> one, that's when I would really feel successful. If I could only win this award or see my book on this bestseller list. Um, and so it just, it goes on and on. What's helpful to me is, um, you know, trying not to make those comparisons. You really can't be someone else or have someone else's path. Uh, it's funny when I was a brand new broadcast journalist, I was 19 years old and I was working at this NBC affiliate and I was doing everything in my power to be exactly like this cool investigative reporter at the other station. Her name was Cheryl Nathan. She was the coolest woman ever. And uh, at one day, the, this old anchor who worked there looked at one of my, my scripts I'd written and said, why did you write this like this? What are you doing? And I said, I was trying to sound like Cheryl Nathan's. I want to be Cheryl Nathan's. And he said, no, you can't do that because the job of being Cheryl Nathan's is taken by Cheryl Nathan's. You're going to have to <laughs> you know, find your own path. And I think there's a lot to be said um, for that line of thought in publishing too. You know, you're, Every path is going to be different, like you said. Um, one thing that's really helped me is not hoping for too many specific things. Um, and just to explain, when my first book came out, I was really hoping when my first novel came out, it would be on Vermont State List, this Dorothy Canfield Fisher list, because I'd followed the list for years. I spent a lot of time in Vermont. And I always thought those librarians did the greatest job curating their state list. And so I was watching for that list to come out and watching and watching. And when the list came out, I checked it and my book wasn't on it and I was crushed. Uh, but other lovely things happened to that book, The Brilliant Fall of Gianna Z. It was on a bunch of other state lists and it won the E.B. White Read Aloud Award. Um, and that really, I don't know, taught me to adjust my thinking to not get too hung up on specific hopes and just to hope for general good things to happen and then Try not to pay attention to when this list or that list is coming out. Um, and it, it comes down, again, it comes down to getting back to work because then you're busy and you're just delightfully surprised when suddenly some nice email shows up with good news. That is very healthy. I mean, I will tell you that every year around this time, I start to get really, I should not say this out loud because I'm a fool, but <laughs> whatever. I, I always am really obsessed with the ALA Awards. And mind you, most of my books are probably not eligible for most of those awards. You know what I mean? It's not like I think that any of my books necessarily could win. Some might, maybe, I don't know. But like, there's no reason on earth for me to feel sick. But I always feel I, I, like I literally worry myself sick about it, which is so not helpful, actually. No. <laughs> and, and not, <laughs> not <good>. at all. <laughs> Because obviously, I mean, the thing is that you can have a thriving and amazing career and never hit the New York Times bestseller list. You can have, um, you know, touch the lives of hundreds of thousands of children and have books in print for a decade and never win a big fancy award. Like those things are great, but they're not actually anything that's in your power. So... I'm trying to take your lesson to heart and not think about it ever. I still think about it a little bit. I'm getting better though. Yeah, it's I easier to said really than done. Sick. 
Easier said than done. For authors, <laughs> by the way, because this is something that, that authors deal with too. It's not just agents. Um, years ago, I was having a day, one of those days where I was like, oh, why didn't my book get this? And why didn't my book get that? And, and I actually wrote a poem called What Happened to Your Book Today? Uh, that's kind of a reminder to all of us that the awards and the, the lists aren't the real reason we do what we do. So maybe we can link to that in the notes. Absolutely. I love that poem. And I'm writing it down right now so that I will put it in the show notes. Um, so we mentioned debut authors, what it was like when you had your new book. Someone on social media, when I said that I wanted to talk about debut authors, they said that I should really talk to a mental health professional to get advice for debut authors. <laughs> but I don't I don't know any mental health professionals. So it's going to be you, Kate. No pressure. Uh, your experiences have ranged, as we say, from the ridiculous to the sublime. And you've kept your wits about you beautifully. So you were the designated advice giver about debuts specifically. What advice do you have for brand newbie authors? Someone just sold their first book, comes out in a year and a half. They're still pinching themselves. Like, is this even real? What do you tell them? To play a long game. I think that's the most important thing. When my first book came out in 2009, my first novel, it debuted um, you know, with a group of other, many other debut novels. And some of those were New York Times bestsellers. And some of them have huge marketing plans. And some of them won big awards. And with that going on around you, it's easy to feel small, but it really is a long game. You don't want one big shiny book. You want a career. And the best thing you can do to make that happen is to take your attention off all the waiting and what's swirling around you and work on your next book, I think. Um, as you know, Jennifer, my, took, my first novel took quite a while to sell, but uh, while you were out there trying to, to take care of that, I was working on other stuff. And you ended up selling a bunch of those other projects before you sold the novel, The Brilliant Fall of Gianna Z. Um, so that's huge. I mean, you can be doing really great work before you have the pressure of having a book out in the world. Um, and the other thing I would say, promote your book and celebrate it. It's your first book and that's worth, you know, joyful celebrations. But also I think it's important to realize that most of the things that drive actual sales are out of your control once you've done your work of writing the book. Um, a lot of that will depend on your publisher's efforts and frankly, which way the wind blows. So um, my advice would be don't kill yourself. Uh, my first book, I did events. I did not follow this advice. I was doing events every weekend from September to December. My children knew my presentation by heart because I dragged them everywhere. Um, and my second book, my second <laughs> novel, came out at, at a time when I wasn't able to do as much. So I only did a handful of events. It sold better than the first book. So uh, it really was a good lesson for me to do some things you love. Uh, as far as promotion, but I wouldn't sweat the rest. You know, um, you don't need swag. If you love little Kleenex packets or sparkly pins with your book cover on it, if those things bring you joy and they're not too expensive, go for it. Throw yourself a party if you like parties and, you know, have cupcakes, but also know that nobody will miss those things if you don't want to do them. And most of all, I would say, um, make sure with all this going on, you pay attention to your family and friends because they are who's going to sustain you through this wild ride and pay attention to your next book because that's where your your career is going to come from. Yeah. I mean, I think this is something that I think we sort of learned together, actually, because you were my one of my first authors and first authors to have multiple books. 
And you said, and then I can bear this out by looking at BookScan, that what sells books the best is the next book. Like every time you have a new book, there's a bump in sales for every book. Um, and it's true. I really think that continuing to write is more important than, you know, necessarily doing a bunch of Goodreads stuff. Like prioritizing the work is always going to benefit you more than anything else, I think. I agree. The word on the street, of course, when we talk about debuts, is that authors have to do a ton of self-promo. And I have a lot of doubts about how effective it is. So I guess we sort of talked about this already. What's a pointless waste of time and energy and things that are good uses of your time and energy? But to reiterate, like pointless? I I don't think social media is pointless at all. But I think fretting and getting drawn into big dramas on social media can be pretty pointless. Um, you know, if you're, if you're spending more time on Twitter than you are writing your book, it's, it's a, it's a, it's a question of whether you're, you're using your time the right way, I think. Um, and also I, I, I love independent bookstores, but sometimes I question, um, when my first book came out, I had it in my head that I should be doing a lot of bookstore events. And so I really pushed for them and, you know, kind of bugged my publicist to set them up. And why aren't we doing one here and here? Uh, but the reality is when you're a brand new author, people don't know who you are. And so a lot of those bookstore events end up being very, very quiet and not necessarily the best use of your time or the bookseller's time. Um, so I think book signings can make uh, book signings and bookstores can make sense when it's, you know, your hometown or your mother's hometown or somewhere where you know a lot of people and can deliver an audience. Um, but otherwise, you really can't just show up at a bookstore and expect to have fans for a book that nobody knows about yet. So probably those two things. And then good uses of your time and energy, aside from writing the next book, obviously. Yeah, I mean, that's number one. Other than that, I would say choose some things that you love and that you're good at. So if you love connecting with book lovers and teachers and librarians on social media and talking about books, do that. Uh, I think school visits are fantastic. Uh, Skype visits can be great if you love them. If you hate them, they won't work well for you because everyone will be able to tell. Uh, I think when you're when you're on social media, it's good to share process and and things other than promotion. It's great to promote other writers' books. Um, festivals, book festivals, I think can be terrific, but I also think um, some of them are not the greatest use of time, depending on what, what the situation is. So I think it's good to ask around about those. Um, and teacher conferences like um, National Council of Teachers of English, you might hear people talk about NCTE or Texas Library Association, TLA. Those are great ways to connect with educators. Uh, and you can ask your publisher if they might be interested in pitching you. Uh, you can never control that, really, but you can throw a note to your publicist to say, hey, I'm really interested in this, and here are some topics that I think I'd be really good talking about that would be helpful to educators. So I'm going to talk to a publicist and a marketing person soon on, on the next episode, I think, but I think something that bears saying and probably repeating next time, too, is that sometimes your publisher might say no to things like, I don't know, I got invited to the Brooklyn Book Festival, or I got invited to such and such, or will you sponsor me to go to this library conference? And the problem is that sometimes it's unclear why they're saying no, and it seems like just, like, why don't they support me? 
but probably they have a reason. Like I remember once many years ago, maybe in 2010, because I think I still lived in San Francisco, <laughs> you got invited to, I think, the Brooklyn Book Festival and you really wanted to go or you you were, you know, excited about the invitation and your publisher was negative about it. But then when we dug a little deeper, we realized like, okay, <laughs> you'd probably sell 12 books. You'd have to drive for eight hours. <laughs> you'd have to spend the night somewhere. Like it would be a lot of money for little reward um, and not a great use of your time if you weren't already there, you know, you know what I mean? So yeah, I feel like yeah. sometimes, sometimes there is a good reason to not do something and your publisher might know it and you might not. So I think it's worth, you know, not just assuming that they're not sending you because, or just the, as you mentioned about um, bookstore events, like I wouldn't leap to assuming that they hate you because they're not booking you a bunch <laughs> of bookstore events rather that they know those booksellers and booksellers have needs. Like they need to have an audience. They need to sell books. Otherwise they can't keep doing events. So, um, so I think that it's, you know, good to be mindful of those things. But anyway, I, I agree. And I think, um, you know, sometimes you're going to understand that and you're going to say, oh yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And also sometimes you won't and you'll be disappointed. And that's when you, you return to, oh, look, the universe is giving me an opportunity to be gracious because our uh, our publishers really are they really are working hard and they have so many books to promote they're doing their best and they want your book to do well they're really trying uh, but they they can't give everybody everything they want because they are working with limited resources so you know it's a it's a balance so circling back to social media for a second um, people a lot of times say social media does not sell books but then people also say authors have to be on social media so what's the real deal um, I don't think authors have to be on social media. I, I think if you love social media and it feels organic to you, um, and if you just like it and you can do it once in a while, I think that's great. And I think it can be super helpful to make those connections. I think it makes you feel more accessible to booksellers and librarians. And I do think uh, that educators who have interacted with you in tw on Twitter might be more likely to reach out and say, oh, we'd like that person to come for an author visit because they have a sense for who you are. But I think it really depends on how organic it feels to you. Uh, teachers and librarians can be great book pushers. You know, they put so many books in kids' hands, and that's wonderful. But the greater benefit to getting to know them on social media is that they're just lovely people, and conversations with them will make your life better. So I would say if you're, you're just starting out in this, go to Twitter, um, listen, follow educators and librarians, but don't you know, follow them and then pitch your book, just follow them and hang out and listen for a while and see what they're talking about and see what they're concerned about and, and see what you have to offer in terms of help, um, you know, in ways other than suggesting your own book to them. Uh, and I think, I think that anything you can do to be helpful to other people, whether it's promoting other authors' books or offering suggestions to educators or, you know, Skype visits or, you know, educators will be on Twitter sometimes saying, oh, my kids are really struggling to revise. Does anybody have examples of what that looks like? Um, those are really great ways to be helpful. And I think to start to make those connections. You mentioned school visits. How important are they when you're brand new? I think school visits can be pretty huge, but you need to be good at them and you need to love kids. Um, strangely, not everyone who writes for children loves children. 
Um, when I was a middle school teacher, <laughs> I, I actually coordinated author visits for my school for, for several years. And so I was lucky enough to bring in authors like Kwame Alexander and Rebecca Stead and Cynthia Lord, Laurie Griffin Burns and Joseph Bruchak. And every single one of them uh, was just amazing and shared their talents and their processes and also genuinely loved my students. And that was so important. We, we also one year brought in an author who visited who clearly didn't want to be there. And I'm not going to name him. Um, but he, you know, he snapped at some kids who asked questions he didn't like, and people are still talking about him over there. So if you don't love it yes. and, and it can be a negative, you know, it's not a positive thing if it's not something you love to do. So, so much of this comes back, uh, you know, to, to choosing things to do for promotion that feel organic to you and feel good to you and that you, you want to do. Once you're starting out with school visits, I would say um, when you're just starting out, it's great to ask if, if you can sit in on a school visit in your town or nearby from an experienced author. Uh, you can also get a sense for what people talk about and how authors do events by going to bookstore events with authors who have been at it a while. It's a great idea when you're just starting to offer a free um a couple free school visits to local schools when you're trying out a new presentation. I still do this when I have a brand new book out and I'm piloting a new presentation. I have some local teachers and librarians and I'll call up and, you know, say, Hey, you want me to come over and do a, a free presentation? Uh, because you get to try things out and you get to get feedback. And also I think it's really important when you put together a school visit presentation, make sure you're doing something other than stand up comedy and promoting your book that the school has given up instructional time for you to be there. And that's really important to remember. So make sure that what you're offering has value to teachers, even after you leave too. Somebody was recently talking to me about debutness, <laughs> debutness. I'm not sure if that's a word. Uh, and they said, basically what authors need to realize is that it's a marathon and not a sprint. And that echoes what you said earlier. I think it's hard for new authors to really have the perspective, right? Because you can't know what you don't know. You can't look down from the top of the hill when you haven't even left the base of the hill. So mixed metaphors aside, what do you know now that you wish you'd known then? I wish I had known that it was okay to say no to some opportunities that didn't make sense. Uh, because when my first few books came out, I was so excited that I said yes to absolutely everything. And um, many of those events were wonderful, but I also occasionally found myself spending an afternoon in an empty bookstore when I would have, you know, rather been with my family or out hiking or something. So it's worth thinking about, you know, what really makes sense and, and finding some balance. I'm not sure balance was a great part of my first couple of book releases. I, I'm a little better at it now. <laughs> so I promised you self-promotion corner, and here we are. We don't have time to talk about all your 12 upcoming books. But perhaps you could chat a bit about a couple of them, either recent, really recent or soon to be forthcoming. And I will also link in the show notes where listeners can buy or pre-order their own copies. Sure. Well, the, the book that I'm getting ready for right now, the release that I'm preparing for now is my next middle grade novel called Chirp, which comes out February 4th from Bloomsbury. It's a middle grade mystery set on a cricket farm. Yes, that's a real thing. Crickets are good for you. Um, and also a coming of age story. And I'm really excited about this one. It's already earned three starred reviews. It's uh, Me Too for middle grade, but it's also not just an issue book. It's funny. There's mystery and sabotage. 
And it's about summer and jumping into lakes and building robots and being ninja warriors and friendship. Um, so that book you can pre-order until February 4th, and then it'll be out in the world. Uh, in March, I have two new books coming out that are nonfiction. Uh, Tracking Pythons is my first middle grade nonfiction. I got to go out with researchers in Southwest Florida to track invasive, invasive Burmese pythons, and that was super fun. Um, and then I have a book called The Next President, which is a picture book with Chronicle, also coming in March, um, that grew out of a weird habit I have. Sometimes I like to go on Wikipedia and look up a year just to like read all the stuff that happened that year. It's not procrastinating. It's really not. Um, but once I was doing this <laughs> and I looked up 1970 and I'm reading along and I saw that Jimmy Carter was elected governor of Georgia that year and Ronald Reagan was reelected governor of California. And I looked at that and I thought, ha, those two guys are both going to be president and they don't even know it yet. And for some reason, I found this hysterical and also fascinating. And so I fell down this complete rabbit hole of figuring out where all the future presidents were when every other president took office. It took a long time and I have a massive chart, uh, but that's what the next president is about. It looks at, for example, when Washington was inaugurated, there were nine future presidents alive. And while some of them were, you know, right there in the Capitol working in law and government, others were, you know, growing up on the frontier. And uh, when JFK was sworn into office in 1961, Bill Clinton, George Bush, and Donald Trump were all 15 years old, and Barack Obama was born that year. So it's all amazing connections like that. And then looking at where our next presidents might be right now. And I'm really hopeful about our next presidents and what they might do for the world. Awesome. Um, and there are links to all those books in the show notes. So finally, since we've been talking so much about debuts, are there any great debut authors with new or upcoming books that you're especially excited to plug? Ooh, yes. So right now, and I haven't even finished it yet, but I'm so in love with it anyway. I'm reading From the Desk of Zoe Washington, which is a middle grade mystery from Janae Marks. It's about baking, and the main character has an incarcerated parent who she suddenly gets a letter from, and there's a, a mystery surrounding that too. And also there are cupcakes that make me hungry every time I read it. Um, and it's not a debut book per se, but Christina Suntorn-Vat's nonfiction debut, All 13, is about the Thai cave rescue. Um, and it's coming out from Candlewick this summer. Christina was in Thailand when that was going on, and she went back to research this. So um, she's, to my knowledge, the only Thai author um, working on a book. And, and from what I've heard, I was on a panel with her at NCTE this year uh, talking about her research and her process. It sounds amazing. She's talking so much about the STEM elements involved, the, the science and technology and math that was involved in that rescue. It's absolutely fascinating. And her access, um, you know, to the, even to the boys was pretty amazing too. That's so cool. I'm excited to put those in the show notes as well. So finally, the favorite section of the podcast for everyone, I think. <laughs> I ask every guest this, what are you obsessed with? It does not have to be bookish, but it can be. I'll start with mine because mine are very silly and I have two actually mini ones. So the first is at the moment, it's just after the new year. It's just after three Kings day and we've taken down all our Christmas decorations. But what I have not known in my adult life until this week is that there's this whole subculture of Christmas storage solutions <laughs> including 
special boxes that have compartments for ornaments so they do not break or get weird. So all of the times in my whole life where we've had a thousand weird shoe boxes and cardboard <laughs> boxes and tissue paper and falling apart nonsense, and it looks like a cardboard box monster has pillaged everything <laughs> whenever we deal with Christmas, now everything is in this beautifully contained, amazing little boxes, and I'm obsessed with it. It's great. Part two it's also right now the Jeopardy greatest of all time tournament. So I've been a huge Jeopardy fan my whole life. I was, I auditioned to be on Jeopardy when I was 13 on teen Jeopardy. I did not get on because the people that got on were all like 17 and 18 year old <laughs> wizards. And I was a 13 year old dum dumb, but <laughs> whatever. Uh, but I always play very vociferously at home, so I'm delighted to watch the greatest of all time tournament with the three top competitors ever, so I really want to see who wins. So it'll probably be over by the time this airs, but maybe it'll be on Hulu or something. Okay, Kate Messner, what are you obsessed with right now? The truth is I have also been obsessed with the Jeopardy tournaments um, and, and answering questions as I can, though not nearly as well as any of the, the competitors there. Uh, but I'm also obsessed with um, this goal that I, I set for myself for 2020. I decided that I wanted to walk 1,000 miles this year. And I discovered this Facebook group uh, called the Walk 1,000 Miles Facebook group. Uh, and apparently it was it was formed as a... Uh, as a result of a challenge from this magazine in the UK called Country Walking. And so there are hundreds and hundreds, probably thousands of people in this Facebook group, um, but mostly from the UK. And they post photos of their walks through the British countryside. And they are just so lovely that um, I'm finding that instead of spending my time walking my miles, I'm looking at their photos, which <laughs> maybe isn't the best thing. Um, but I, I am. I'm obsessed with the, these, the, the walking photos from Britain. <laughs> So how many miles a day do you have to walk to make that? I'm not going to do the math. You can do the math. It, it averages out to just a hair under three. So what I've been doing is aiming for three miles a day, which is not bad. That's not bad. Yeah, that's easy. Easy peasy. Come on. It is. But when you, you can miss look a at day, Facebook and walk at the same time. Yeah. <laughs> um, pro note to listeners, you should not look at Facebook and walk at the same time. If you have That's a treadmill true. desk, it works out just fine. Two or three miles an hour. <laughs> All right. I'm going to let you go, but thank you so much for stopping to chat with me. Thanks, Jen. It was great talking with you. Thanks so much to my guest, Kate Messner, and to you for listening. The Literati Cast has a Patreon. It's at patreon.com slash literaticat. Throw in a buck if you like the podcast. You'll get the chance to ask questions and give your ideas for future episodes. Plus, your donations help me continue to be able to pay for web hosting, production, and transcription. Speaking of transcription, all of the episodes from 2009 and earlier are now available as transcripts. Go to the show notes at jenniferloffren.com slash literaticast for more info about each episode, including links to all the books we talk about, and there should be a blue button on each show's entry that will allow you to download transcripts as you desire. And as always, if you're moved to write a review of the podcast, it would be much appreciated. Your reviews help more folks find the show. Thanks again for listening, and see you next time. <laughs>